Crypto Watch is presented by theconstantinvestor.com. I'm Alan Kohler, and every day my writing and podcasts put the financial world into context with a focus on the issues that matter. Join us today. It's only a dollar for the first month. And now it's time for this week's Crypto Watch. Alan Kohler here with this week's Crypto Watch. And this week it's Nick Armstrong, who is the CEO and founder of a company called Identity, with double I at the end. Uh, its ASX code is ID8, and it listed just last month on uh, Wednesday, the 17th of October. 75 cent shares were listed, raised $11 million. The price popped up to 85 cents, and then uh, is currently at just under 80. Um, so uh, still above the uh, list price. But anyway, the the key to this business is that it's using blockchain uh, to set up a information sharing network between banks at the enterprise level. It's not a retail business, it's an enterprise business. Um, looking to overlay information sharing on the SWIFT network that banks use to communicate with each other. And, and uh, very, very interesting business, but more importantly, it's a kind of a, it's an example of blockchain in practice. Now they've been going for four years uh, developing this thing and um, uh, as I say, they've just raised $11 million. Uh, they don't expect to be break even for a while um, as they uh, sign up banks around the world to use their blockchain to share information. Uh, and uh, the idea of it is to um, is to uh, deal with money laundering and crime, um, and help banks to uh, fulfil their compliance obligations in relation to money laundering. So it's a fascinating use case for blockchain, and uh, Nick has some interesting comments about the use of blockchain and its uh, future as well. So here's Nick Armstrong, who's the CEO and founder of Identity. Nick, it's probably best if we start with you explaining what uh, identity does and what the what the technology you uh, you basically I think you you invented it uh, four years ago with someone named Eric Knight. So tell us what perhaps you could begin by telling us what the the insight you had was that the the what you think what you thought then was needed and and uh, how you went about doing it. Thanks, Alan. So uh, the the problem that we set out to solve. Um, was really um, financial crime compliance, so um, anti-money laundering, um, counter-terrorism financing, et cetera, because it's a, it's a huge problem. Um, over $2 trillion is laundered each year and less than 1% of that is being uh, detected or picked up by, by banks. Um, and, and, and most of the money flow is still going through um, networks like the SWIFT, the SWIFT network. Um, so what identity set up to do to try and solve that problem was um, using blockchain to create um, an information layer that can sit over the top of any type of um, payment network. And uh, what that would do is create a, a, basically a Dropbox for attaching missing information um, to payments that can be used to help a bank do a financial crime compliance investigation um, or, or enrich um, the various different monitoring systems that the bank has in place that can detect that automatically. Well, Nick, what is it about the SWIFT network uh, that allows 99% of money laundering to, to take place that it doesn't pick it up? 
Well, the Swift, the Swift Network's been around for 35 five years and the messaging format, so the, the actual way in which a bank will send an instruction to another bank across the Swift Network, um, has limited information. And this is just a, a legacy issue that's been around since um, the early days. So um, in many cases, the actual message itself is just limited to about 300 characters. Um, and so there's no space for including documents. There's, there's really no space for attaching purpose of payment information. So it could be something as simple as um, this is for a shipment of um, T-shirts from China because my company is in the business of um, fashion retail, for example. So that all of that information doesn't actually fit into the payment message. Um, and it, it's only been um, recently sort of post um, 9-11 um, and uh, that some of the, the more recent sanctions that um, banks are now required to actually collect that information and share it with other banks. So this is, this is a, a sort of classic legacy CEC issue and we see blockchain as the right technology to be able to solve um, that information sharing challenge because it does a few things really, really well um, that are missing from the system today. Well, so how would attaching that information, the details of the transaction, uh, help with dealing with money laundering? Well, all banks have systems, um, transaction monitoring systems, um, sanction screening filters, uh, and they're, they're, all, they're all set up to properly detect um, bad activity, um, but they're operating on limited information at the moment. So the example that we use is our um, VP of Partnerships based in Singapore. His middle name is Osama, and every time that we pay him, his, that payment gets held up by a bank for more investigation, and we have to provide a pay slip and um, other evidence of him uh, of his employment with us to, to sort of prove that that he's not related to Osama bin Laden, that he's legitimate, um, and, and that's a highly manual process and costly for the bank. And we did some work. Uh, we did a pilot that we ran with seven banks and Swift, and we estimated during that pilot that it's about fifty US dollars for every payment that's getting. Um, held up and investigated by a bank and that anywhere from around 6 to 8% of payments are being held up at some stage in the chain, we believe because of missing information. So uh, um, is that what your technology still is aimed at, just dealing with the uh, money laundering and crime uh, or, is it, or has it developed over the past four years? Yeah, well, we started expanding the use cases. One of, one of the really interesting things that uh, from working in the in, in the financial crime compliance area is that you start to see that the customer experience is improved. Um, so if customers are getting less payments held up, these are the customers of the bank, largely corporate customers. If they're getting payments through faster, um, less requests for information. Um, so before our technology, there'd be a phone call or, or an email sent back to the customer from that this supporting information and the payment could be held up for days. So what we've started to do is look at new use cases. Um, and I'll give an example. So accounts receivable reconciliation. So improving um, the ability for a corporate customer to better reconcile the payments or understand what um, their, their, their payments are for. Um, it's the same problem. It's missing information. So, so we've started to expand our use cases now to um, improve proving customer experience through things like improved accounts receivable reconciliation. 
um, payables reconciliation and also um, some of the, the challenges around um, trade documentation. So we're, what we've done, Alan, is put turn those into modules that we sell on top of our core platform. Um, so as a bank, you could um, be buying one module um, that we can then sort of expand that um, over time into into new use cases. So, so the uh, your system works through the use of a token. It's almost it sounds a bit cryptocurrency ish, although I don't think you have anything to do with cryptocurrencies. But nevertheless, um, your as I understand it, your platform is built on the uh, or at least your private blockchain is built on the Ethereum platform, and you use tokens. Is that right? Correct. Yeah. So, so you you spot on. I mean, the, our concept of tokenization um, is not crypto tokens. Um, so to- tokenization in our sense is really just just creating a unique identifier for a transaction that um, enables all of this supporting information to be linked up to the actual um, payment itself. Um, so one of the one of the um, terms that we we been we introduced to the market a few years ago is know your transaction um, because we think of that as having a full picture of a transaction um, and so who the act is involved, what's it for, um, rather than just know your customer, which is an old outdated process. Um, so that little token or unique identifier is the key to the, the transaction. So unlike a cryptographic token, which is really a digital representation on a blockchain of, of value, um, our little unique identifier um, is the is almost the key to looking up a record um, in the distributed ledger. We do use um, Ethereum. Um, we use it in a in a private situation. So unlike the public blockchain that um, is being run and maintained by the people who um, get incentivized um, to spend money on hardware and power by a little token that they can then sell. Um, in a private blockchain, the servers and the energy are being paid for by um, by the banks that are that are running the nodes in the network, um, and there's no need to have a cryptographic token to incentivise them because they're just paying their bills as they would normally. And so the bank, your the banks who use your your system would send each other tokens, which would then unlock or or uh, provide the entry to the information for transactions. That's exactly right. So on a simple basis, our little um, tokens, the identity tokens will go into a traditional payment message, just into any spare field in the message and then those 300 characters. Um, And then that will go, when that's um, sent to another bank, they can use that reference to look up a ledger, the record in the distributed ledger. Now, if they're not running um, our application, we have a web portal that they can also use to um, basically uh, put that key in and, and unlock that record, but there's limitations in what they can see. So they might only be able to see um, whatever the sending bank has permissioned them to see. So we've been talking about, or we've been mentioning the SWIFT network, and perhaps it's best to explain what that is. It stands for the society, it's actually a, a, an acronym, stands for Society for worldwide interbank financial telecommunication started in 1973 and it's what the banks now use currently to to communicate with each other there's 11,000 institutions that are members of it in 200 countries um and so presumably in kind of in devising your system you 
came to understand how SWIFT works and what its what its gaps were. Is that right? Yeah, so we, we won a competition run by SWIFT in 2016 called the um, Inner Tribe Industry Challenge on Compliance to, to really try and help SWIFT and SWIFT's member banks solve some of these challenges. Uh, and, and, and that's what led to us being able to do, to, to do a pilot with SWIFT and, and seven banks. I mean, the, the, the choice for us of, of aligning with SWIFT, and, and our technology can be used over any payment network, but SWIFT still accounts for the majority of high-value payments, cross-border high-value payments. Um, while there are alternative payment rails starting, there's, there's emerging ones like Ripple, um, there are some more well-established um, payment rails like Earthport um, or even sort of MasterCard, for example. Um, we think that the real pain points are in the SWIFT network and in the high-value um, high value channel, not the sort of lower value, so remittance type type payments. Yeah, so I got the impression so that, that's that you, really where we're focused. Yeah. I, I was kind of interested in the fact that you were cooperating with Swift uh, back in 2016 and won that competition, but then you seem to be turning on them now and uh, going after their business. I mean, ha- do you think you've got a technology that can replace Swift? Well, we don't do settlement, um, so our our belief. Our firmly held belief is that the rails or the way that settlement is done today um, is robust and very good at moving value, but just poor at moving information. Uh, and that's so that that's the information challenge is the one that we're trying to solve. And with with Swift, there, Swift are building an ecosystem um, for vendors. So like us, they have a global payments initiative underway, which is looking at opening up the rails. To, to do um, open innovation. So in, in Australia, we've got NPP, the new payments platform, uh, which was actually built by Swift. Um, and there's a concept of overlay services, which are really services like exactly what Identity provides that sit over the top of fee settlement infrastructure. And so I think we can expect to see both across the you know, cross-border Swift network and also in some of the more domestic networks like NPP in Australia, these innovative um, services that sit over the top that can do things like sharing documents or things like request for payment. So um, you could pull money from somebody else's bank account if they gave you permission to do that, similar to a direct debit, but just done in a real-time fashion. But what would, what's to stop Swift uh, adding a blockchain to its service and blowing you out of the water? <laughs> they're experimenting with blockchain at the moment. They've done a few proof of concepts as well themselves. Um, we we believe it's an it's an ecosystem approach um, that Swift are taking. So um, they're trying to encourage open innovation to um, really um, solve some of the, these these big challenges. Um, in terms of why um, they they wouldn't do it, I mean we're an application that sits on top of blockchain. So it, it is highly possible that at some stage Swift might put it a blockchain um, that they set up and, and run that applications like ours could sit on and work with. Um, so while you mentioned before that we're using Ethereum, there are other blockchains out there that we've experimented with. In fact, there's some, even in Australia, I saw recently that um, there's been a, a, the Red Belly blockchain um, um, managed to surpass the, the Visa network in terms of transaction processing capabilities. So there's some really interesting projects like that um, 
and blockchains that we're we're experimenting with. And if that's the path that Swift decided to go down, or some other banks decided to go down, then then we would move across to that. You've got a partnership with HSBC. Can you tell us what that involves? Well, HSBC is a customer of ours, uh, so not not a partnership. So we're actually we make revenue from that that contract. Um, we says part of our broader strategy is to um, sell into the bigger banks because these bigger banks are ones that have the network, um, so to speak, and and so that's really where where we're focused on. So I think you can expect to see from us at least over over the next twelve months more announcements about um, other banks that we're we're working with. Um, so what as well? Well, what have you sold to HSBC then? So it's our our core product, which is called Overlay Plus, um, and that's really where the um, the modules can sit on top of. I can't talk about exactly what module they're using, um, but they are using Overlay Plus, and um, and and our plan is to look at how we can you know, upsell more modules um, in the future to the bank because there's, it's a big bank. They're in 52 countries um, and the largest trade bank in the world. So we, we, we see a lot of opportunity with the bank to really help improve on, on you know, some of these, these legacy um, challenges um, that exist in, in all banks. So um, you know, that's really our, our big market opportunity. But, but HSBC is only using it in India, aren't they? Is, is that just to check it out to see how it works? Well, that was the, that's the launch market, correct? But there's a plan to, to roll it out into multiple markets um, over you know over the next twelve months. So, um, unfortunately, like I'm supposed, like um, all all um, fintechs, um, you know, each region has different regulatory challenges, um, and so um, you know, there might be slight customizations of the technology depending on on which region the technology is being deployed into. Um, that's one of the, the uh, things I think that presents an opportunity to us as well is how um, how can you configure, you know, pre-configure the software to comply with, with local country regulations um, and some of these other regulations that are coming in like GDPR, the General Data Privacy Regulation. Can you tell us how much you sell it for, what, how your pricing model works? Well, we've got five components to the pricing model. Um, I think the most important one is our ongoing recurring revenues, which are a combination of um, support and maintenance, which is billed monthly. Um, and then we have the transaction pricing component, um, which is really based on um, how many times those unique identifiers are generated. Um, the other components of our pricing model are really around the customization. Uh, which is which is typically a one-off fee, but longer term we we target about twenty percent of our revenue to come from those one-off fees. So mainly um, moving forward, the the best sort of um, predictor of growth for us, I think, is how many transactions we get through and and how many licenses we can we can sell. And what does your work with HSBC tell you? Your ARPU, your average revenue per per user. Is likely to be. Well, we don't have an ARP. We don't have an ARPU, unfortunately, um, because um, we we don't look at it really per user, um, but we look at it per transaction. So, um, okay, I'm, I'm just trying to get a sense yeah. of, of 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 how much money we're talking about. Um, I can't disclose. I can't disclose that, but um, it's you know, in, in the, the transaction component is is a tiered pricing. So the more 
um, the more volume that a bank uses, then the cheaper it will become. So, okay, well, take us through your prospectus forecast then. What, what, are, you, what are you saying? What did you say you're likely to be making, say, next year? Well, we didn't, we didn't provide any forecasts in the prospectus. Um, we, we did disclose that we have an active pipe of, of, of banks, so we've currently got 42 opportunities in the pipeline. Um, most of those are in the Asia-Pacific region, um, not just limited to um, Australia. So we're taking very much a regional um, approach to this. And so uh, those, those are all progressing well, and I, I expect that we'll have quite a lot um, to announce to the market over the, over the next 12 months. Okay, can you tell us your cash situation, how much you're burning and um, how much you've got in the bank? So we raised $11 million through the IPO. Uh, we had uh, one, just over a $1 million um, that went out in fees and related to, to the IPO. Um, in terms of our use of funds, uh, we've got $4.5 million on continued um, product development. So that's a combination of the um, software that's being, being written, um, our ongoing um, module development program and also uh, then we, we've got a separate um, uh, line for R&D so we expect to spend about a, a million dollars over the next 18 months on um, research and development and looking at some of these these new blockchains and whether we can uh, find you know the latest and, and, and greatest uh, blockchain that's coming out to use that technology with and then um, another uh, three and a half million dollars on um, corporate operating expenses. So uh, so that's our that's our expenditure plan over the next 18 months. And do you expect at the end of that 18 months you'll be break-even? We, we won't be break-even um, by then, um, but um, that's dependent on, on, on a number of things that um, we are looking at at the moment. It's how fast we grow, um, how many markets we roll out into, um, and also... How um how how our revenue um starts to um starts starts to come in. We're working on a, a few partnerships at the moment that um could change our trajectory quite uh, substantially. So I'm ho- hope, hoping that we can uh, um bring that bring those to a close over the next three months. Yes, well uh, that'd be good. Um, uh, uh, just a big picture hard coming into um coming into Christmas because everyone goes on holidays. <laughs> Well, well, look, you know, um, uh, hope is the common factor of all startups, isn't it, Nick? Scale-ups scale now, Alan. Yeah, that's, oh, scale-ups, sorry. You're no yeah. longer a startup, are you? You're, a, you're definitely a scale-up. Um, just a big picture question, Nick. I mean, looking, looking at what, you, what you're doing with blockchain, how pervasive do you think blockchain is going to become? Not just in financial services, but but life in general, commercial life in general. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I think it's a transformational technology uh, that has the potential to to transform a number of industries, and in use cases like like ours, which are really information sharing use cases, the technology is in, in is in production, so um, it's not far off. I think it's here today. When can we start seeing value transfer use cases? So sort of payments and things like that. I think they're they're here today and banks are already um, using using the technology for that. So so the technology is here. The 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 best analogy I heard was um it's like uh, inter, in, internet 
3.0, where you, you've had internet 2.0, which is really e-commerce um, and uh, looking at um, uh, payment gateways, integration with Visa and MasterCard, things like that. Internet 3.0, um, will have, there'll be a native currency where people can transact with each other, almost like barter in a way. Um, and, and blockchain is the technology that enables that to happen. So, um, so I really do think that the technology is transformational and I think that it's actually here in production now um, in a number of these cases that we see out there. That was Nick Armstrong, the CEO and founder of Identity. And now it's time for this week's Crypto Watch Market Wrap with market commentator Saeed Sadawi. The biggest news this week includes the crypto community has basked in festivities celebrating the 10-year anniversary of the Bitcoin white paper, proving significant as both a testament to the technology and significant in marking 10 years since the 2008 financial crisis, Bitcoin has once again proven, despite its inherent volatility, it's truly stood the test of time. The Ethereum Foundation has announced this week at a blockchain event known as DevCon, they're actively funding efforts to create specialized mining hardware with the blockchain data storage firm known as Filecoin. Estimated to cost between 20 and 30 million US dollars, the hardware will differ from conventional ASIC devices by utilizing what's known as the less costly verifiable delay function. More details to come. Running off its recent $8 billion US valuation, the world's most popular cryptocurrency on-ramp, Coinbase, has added the browser startup Brave's BAT token to their pro trading platform. Rumored to be added added for a number of months prior, BAT is the latest token to be listed on the Coinbase platform following the 0x protocol and the USD coin stablecoin token both added within the last month. The Winklevoss twins, better known for both their early Bitcoin investment and owning Coinbase's closest rival known as Gemini, are suing cryptocurrency entrepreneur Charlie Shrem for thousands of Bitcoin. Reportedly from a deal between the groups, the twins are still said to be short to the tune of 5,000 Bitcoin. The lawsuit points out that Shrem has since leaving jail made several extravagant purchases said to be the product of the twins' misappropriated cryptocurrency. And finally, Tether is back in the news again. The stablecoin issuer has confirmed last week it was banking with Bahamas-based Deltec Bank and Trust Limited. Publishing a letter from the institution as evidence, however, concerns were immediately raised with no name attached to the letter and furthermore, the signature being simply a cubic curve. Concerns have continued. And now on to the weekly market wrap-up. Yet another relatively chill week in the world of Bitcoin. With altcoins, however, springing left, right, and center, it's well and truly time for the alts, albeit not a massive alt season. With Bitcoin dominance ticking upward 0.5% to 52.7%, overall market cap is down US $10 billion or 4%. Continuing its trek near the US 6500s, Bitcoin is well and truly holding steady, only deviating slightly from this price range once during the last month. The longer Bitcoin maintains this price action, the stronger it will act as either resistance or a floor, depending on the next direction Bitcoin moves. However, with an impending ETF decision looming, participants are hinging a move either up or down, depending on its outcome. With notable mentions going as Serum Labs token up 41% in this week alone, and Endor Labs up 22%. This week, it's important to note Bitcoin's rival, Bitcoin Cash, has risen a massive 31% ahead of its hard fork scheduled for November 15th. And finally, the majors Ethereum, Ripple, Bitcoin Cash and Litecoin are up a lovely 10.2%, largely due to Bitcoin Cash's weekly run. 
And that's all for the weekly wrap-up, guys. I'm Sayyid Sadawi, and I'll see you next time. Crypto Watch is presented by theconstantinvestor.com. Our theme music was written and recorded by Broke for free.